You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We'd like to thank our friends at Movement Watches and ZipRecruiter for their continued support of SpyCast. I'll tell you more about these great companies later, but first, let's meet our guests. So we're joined today by Sven Hughes, who throughout his military and civilian career has been an outspoken advocate for soft power techniques to create behavioral change. He was formerly a reserve officer within the British military intelligence, psychological operations, and UK special forces. He's also a qualified high-risk bodyguard and surveillance operative. He subsequently worked for six months as a consultant to the International Security Assistance Force in Afghanistan within the psychological operations cell. He has worked as a civilian within strategic communications sector for two decades. He is a founder of two strategic communication companies, one for commercial clients, Verbalization Limited, and one for defense clients, NGOs, and charities, Global Influence. These two companies have been responsible for target audience analysis and intervention campaigns on behalf of prime ministers, presidents, royal households, militaries, government departments, and commercial clients in over 120 countries. He is recently responsible for producing, quote, the most successful counter-radicalization campaign in history with a 2 billion media reach for the Fate Charity Network, which is Families Against Terrorism and Extremism, as well as the award-winning Not Another Brother counter-extremism campaign against ISIS, which I'm definitely going to ask you about. This is probably really interesting. He's a regular international speaker on the future of strategic communications to audiences, including British Special Forces, the Joint Services Command and Staff, Joint Forces Headquarters, the House of Lords, and he's also contributed a PR rollout for what's called Fishability UK. And the reason I'm bringing this up is it's really cool charity supporting military veterans with PTSD, as well as an online branding and presence for the Black and White Association, which is legacy support for 15 UK PSYOPs group. He's the author of the new book, Verbalization, The Power of Words to Drive Change. Welcome, Sven, and thank you for taking the time to talk to us here on SpyCast. Good morning, Vince. So I, I want to ask you, where, where did the idea for this book come from? Because I think... It's outside of kind of the range of what we normally do here on SpyCast. But when I when I started reading it, I'm like, this really makes a lot of sense for what we talk about here on a day-to-day basis. So can you talk a little bit about where the book came from and kind of broadly, bottom line up front, how does it apply to us? Okay, well, where it came from was, was a very specific instance that happened to me when I was... Um, a civilian consultant in Afghanistan for ISAF, uh, for International Security Assistance Force in southern Afghanistan. Um, there was, uh, I was in a trench. I was supporting uh, supporting the, the troops with uh, with uh, media support and information support, and I was in a trench uh, while hostile activity was taking place around me. And at the bottom of the trench floor were these little uh, blue triangles on on the ground. And as I as I picked one up. Um, someone was was talking to me in the trench and we, we worked out that they were arrowheads from Alexander the Great, which sort of struck me that we hadn't really made much progress in <laughs> Afghanistan since 330 BC when Alexander the Great was, was uh, you know, taking on Persia. So really at, at that point, it was a very conscious decision uh, that I made to 
try and do something about that. Accepting that, that our, our messaging strategy and conflict environments isn't working is one thing, then trying to find the solution to that is completely different. And that's taken really a, a sort of 10 to 15 year period to, to develop a new methodology, a new technique, to better understand any audience so as to better talk to them, to more effectively talk to them to affect their behavior. And in a, in, a, in a peacekeeping context or in a stability context, in a defense context, that can be a very significant uh, factor in, in achieving peace. And maybe the most significant factor. I mean, I think that people are slowly beginning to realize it should have been a long time ago that we can't just blast our way to victory in these countries. The, your countrymen, the British, tried this in the 19th century. The Soviets tried it in the 1980s. We've now tried it for the longest war in American history. And the more we kill... We're very good at that. But the more we kill, the more we realize that that's not the solution, or at least it's not all the solution. You, you certainly can't change someone's mind if you've shot them in the head. So we can, we can start there and, and agree that obviously it is, it is certainly more morally acceptable to take this route, but often it's more effective. Now, that's not to say it has to be some sort of peacenik agenda. Um, it can actually be quite a robust uh, process as well. You can, you can stand for dialogue over division, and you can try and bring communities together, try and increase empathy and understanding, and that's the first and should always be the first way into this problem. The second thing, though, is if, if, the, if the, the enemy or if the other side, the oppositional force, is still unwilling to negotiate, is still unwilling to enter dialogue, is still unwilling to consider peace for whatever reason they may have, if it's religious or sociological or whatever it may, whatever else it may be, then you may need to weaponize words. And then it's a, a matter of actually more aggressively almost using um, uh, the weapon system of language almost as a, a kinetic teeth-armed capability. So it, it should be both for peacekeeping and, and, and enfranchising communities into dialogue, but also there is a robust dimension to it which we need to be aware of as well. So this sounds a lot, I know it's not because I've read the book, but this sounds a lot like the old-fashioned, for us, the Vietnam era, when the hearts and minds that failed so miserably in the war in Vietnam. What do we have now that the people who are running that war don't? Like, What more do we know? And this might be a really long answer, but let's break it down a little bit. More do we know about the ways of winning hearts and minds that can be more effective today than it was in the 70s or even 10 years ago? Well, I, I think there are actually very good examples from the past where uh, hearts and minds has been extremely successful, or at least, should I say, the the systematic process of understanding an audience and then engaging them with the right language. So if you look back in the Second World War to the political warfare executive, there were people like Sefton Delmer working in 1942 that was doing some extraordinary stuff with the radio station called Gustav Siegfried I, uh, um, which was sort of uh, broadcasting into to, uh, to Germany and into the training camps of Germany, officers and so forth, and undermining them from, from within. There's been some tremendous work, right the way back, since, since Genghis Khan and Roman times, I mean, using rumor and using speculation. The Taliban have been extremely uh, good at using this. Daesh has been extremely good at using this. So I think even though perhaps in Vietnam, yes, mistakes were made, I wouldn't use that as the example to sort of to, to, to dismiss it all as, a, as a, an effective way to, to communicate. Why is it exciting now, um, or at least exciting for me in terms of, uh, you know, there being a, the technology now that very much suits the verbal as distinct from the visual? So because of the, the internet and the power of the internet and social media, which is essentially a text-based medium, and also texting between, between telephones and mobile phones, obviously that is very suitable for uh, effective language usage and, and, and understanding the way in which people talk using those technologies can inform a better way to talk to either individual groups and cohorts or to mass audiences. Yeah, so there's a couple things I want to deconstruct from that. You talked about text-based communication. In your book, you have some statistics that that kind of hit me over the head, that people who live in a city, which we do here in Washington, are hit with over 5,000 visual messages a day, just whether it's advertising or other things like that. And then if you wanted to watch just what was uploaded onto YouTube in a 24-hour period, it would take you 50 years. And so you're advocating, correct me if I'm wrong, that reading text-based is is the solution in many or at least the the process i mean it's just, and, and i'll let you answer that but i want to add on to this this idea of empathy seems to be first and foremost to dealing with the hearts and minds situation and that to me is 
somewhat of a double-edged sword. One, it makes a whole lot of sense, right? You need to get in people's shoes to understand what makes them tick. But it's also something we're really bad at. Uh, it, particularly when we're dealing with forces in countries or, or opposition like ISIS or like the Taliban, where we see ourselves as so dramatically different than they are. Uh, and, you know, we talk about in the intelligence world about mirror imaging and kind of treating other people the way we would react to certain situations. This is almost kind of the reverse of that, trying to put ourselves in the mindset of an ISIS soldier. or a That seems incredibly difficult to do. And so I want to kind of throw that. I know there's a lot there, kind of deconstructed as you work along. Okay, well, there's sort of three elements to that question. Uh, first of all, are we oversaturated by visual stimuli? Yes, absolutely. I think I'm, I'm right in saying that our retinas receive 27 hours worth of imagery within a 24-hour period because, of course, it's multi-layered right. visual imagery. So there is no way the human brain can take in all that information. We have to rely, therefore, on cognitive biases, on heuristics, which is essentially the brain finding shortcuts and saying, okay, I, I, I've seen enough, I, I can trust that, or I can, I can trust this. What, the problem with the visual, though, is, is not only is it reducing the amount of cognition in our brains to actually put consideration into that. We just don't have time to consider everything visually that's coming in. Um, but, but also, it's almost as though everyone is now trying to flood the, the, the space with as much visual material as possible to cut through. The new way of cutting through is just to oversaturate mm -hmm. it, which makes the whole problem worse. It's almost like an arms race uh, in, in the yeah. visual space. Well, that can't be a sensible way to progress. So the other side of that coin, of course, is, is the verbal space, not just text-based, but the verbal mm -hmm. space. And if you think, actually, peer-to-peer -peer advocacy is the most persuasive uh, way of influencing someone, is, is having a conversation with them. If you think, really, fundamentally, you know, everything, every human engagement we have, you know, from saying, I love you, to, to, to uh, you know, supporting your... your, your football team in this country is, is sort of you're talking about it. it's conversation conversation collateral the engagement and empathy with others all comes from from peer to peer and our, our social media is now part of that so the opportunity is there for the verbal it's very suitable for our for our current uh, technologies but now the the third part of your question really was then is how to essentially almost manufacture empathy how right. to understand the target audience more effectively so as to then communicate the right words to them and that's where certainly i've i've been involved for the last uh, 10 15 years in in creating a model of essentially behavioral understanding of an audience. Now, we right. call that RAID, which is Rapid Audience Insight Diagnostic. And essentially, it's a 24-parameter model which you can assess any audience. And what it's working out is what are, the, what are the necessary things to know about them to understand their language usage. So that's their underlying psychological and uh, their cognition, their brain science, their contextual factors, the way they currently use language, their metaphor landscapes, their analogies, their sentence structures, you know, what words do women use? What words do men use? What words do men use when they're angry? Yeah, but this is far beyond just learning the language. Yes, I mean, you can't, yes. you can't just go learn Pashtun yep. and go into northern Afghanistan and think that you're being effective. Mm -hmm. It's not just slang either. It's a lot of the history of how the little, you know, you have to think about how language has evolved in that certain area. I mean, I, I try to, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but you're, Ooh, you're yeah. fascinating, but I just, I want to know more about this is, I think of myself, I'm upper middle class. I grew up in a relatively well-to-do family. I went to lots and lots of schools for lots and lots of education. So me being empathetic, meaning putting myself in the shoes of some Taliban or ISIS fighter who grew up in a village with no running water and no indoor plumbing, who has no education other than what he's learned from a mosque or maybe, maybe he's been read to the Quran. It seems incredibly difficult to do. I mean, obviously it is, or we would have done it already. Mm -hmm. um, what can we do uh, to change? I mean, because we're not doing it right now. As, as, because we wouldn't, in all due respect, we wouldn't need people like you saying this if we were doing this already. You know, why, why hasn't this hit people over the head yet? Is it just very difficult to do? Use a term, and I want to ask you, verbal engineering in an article that you wrote. Is that what we're talking about here? Mm. Yeah. yeah, it is. And, and okay, let's, let's take you as the case study rather than the Taliban for a second. Mm. Then we'll, we'll move on to, to the Taliban. But 
just because of what you've told me there, there will be certain patterns, straight away because of your education, your cultural background, um, what I know about you having read up before this interview in terms of you know, previous military and so forth, there will be language patterns that inherently can be tapped into and reflected back to you, which will increase the likelihood of you considering what I have to say or it pattern matching your interests. But also there's something else underneath that, which is, I'm not sure if you have a brother or sister, mm -hmm. siblings, yeah. okay. okay. Your parents, I'm sure, if they were in the room, would turn around and say, if they wanted either you or your sibling to go upstairs and go to bed when you were a child, even though they're trying to get you to do the same thing, they would probably talk to you and use different language because one of you, they may need to say, I'll race you upstairs, it's a game, let's right. go upstairs. And the other one is, look, go upstairs, otherwise, you know, daddy will be angry or mummy will be angry, okay? And so the individual themselves has a particular way in which they engage with the world. So really all you've got to, all you've got to work out, but the, 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 the science really here is to work out is not what you want to sell to the people, not what you want to tell them, but rather really what they want to buy. Right. So you start with them in mind and then work back. You're right, you can't discover everything about someone, but you can discover an awful lot. And that doesn't have to be from um, duplicitous sources. That can be from open sources. That can be from just engaging them in dialogue. And, and in Afghanistan with the Taliban is inviting them to shurahs and seeing if they'll engage in conversation with you. It can be listening, of course, yeah, to, to debriefing reports from people who have been captured. But it also can be listening to the radio stations that they're promoting or, or whatever it may be. There will be linguistic traits. There are religious linguistic traits. There are cultural linguistic traits. We just have to take the time and the effort to understand them. And it goes back to what you're saying is that you can't get to their hearts and minds if you put a hole through their mind. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's I, always time later on if you need to shoot somebody in the head. That, well, that's the yeah. ultimate sanction, of yeah. course. But I mean, you know, but, but hopefully, and, and, and I would like to think, and certainly from the evidence assessed based on the evidence that I've seen in the work that we've done, the, the need to go kinetic can be very significantly reduced if you actually take the time. And we're not talking about huge financial investment. If you think the, the, the cost of the US or the, or the British military for each fighter plane that right. they buy, you know, is into the hundreds of millions, if not, you know, I don't know the exact figure. But you're talking about here, really, it's actually quite primitive means by which to listen to people, to talk to people, to take the time to understand them. Often in a conflict situation, you do actually have the time to do that. The, the, we've been in Afghanistan for many, many years. You know, we've been in the Middle East for many years. We've been dealing with Russia for many years. We had the emerging, uh, uh, you know, Chinese situation emerging for many years. It's not as though we couldn't have been deep listening to these audiences. We'll have more with Sven in a moment. But first, let me take a minute to tell you about Movement Watches. Movement Watches, this is spelled M-V-M-T, but pronounced movement, was founded on the belief that style shouldn't break the bank. The watchmaker's goal is to change the way consumers think about fashion by offering high-quality, minimalist products at revolutionary prices. With over 1 million watches sold to customers in over 160 countries around the world, Movement Watches has solidified itself as the world's fastest-growing watch company. Look, the story of this company's beginning, it's pretty amazing. And as someone who has worked to use word of mouth and social media to build SpyCast brand, I really took to their story. In 2013, two watch enthusiasts dropped out of college with the dream of reinventing the watch industry. Now, I'm not one to advocate this, stay in school, kids. But tired of big brand markups, the duo set out to create a direct-to-consumer model. Due to enormous fan support, they became the second-highest crowd-funded fashion brand in 2013. Through the amazing engagement of their fans, they've established a growing community on social media, amassing over 1.5 million followers. And since 2013, they've really come far. The watches are absolutely gorgeous. And now we're talking both men's and women's watches. I told you this before, but when I went on their website to check out the watches, a huge argument broke out in my office about which one looked the best. And even though I eventually would choose a single watch, there were so many that I would love to have. And the great part is, if I want another one, I can afford it. Because movement watches start at just $95. At a department store, you're looking at $400 to $500 for a watch of this quality. Movement figured out that by selling online, they were able to cut out the middleman and retail markup, providing the best possible price. Classic design, quality construction, and stylized minimalism. And again, over 1 million watches sold in over 160 countries. So get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to movementwatches.com spycast. Look, the watch I have, really cool design. Seriously, I've been getting compliments ever since I put it on. A lot of, whoa, where'd that come from? So now's the time to step up your watch game. Go to mvmtwatches.com slash spycast. That's movementwatches.com slash spycast. Join the movement. 
Who's good at this? I mean, you talk about World War II era British information operations. I, I, I tend to think Russian hybrid war, kind of, they kind of know what they're doing a little bit better than we might. And uh, is it really important to study others who have done this well? Yes. I mean, certainly, as I said, the political warfare executive and some of the, the I, I can only you know, speak for the for the British element that I've, I've learned the history of. I haven't really looked internationally so much at the history, but certainly some of the political warfare executive work was absolutely spellbinding and is still sort of best in class. I think certainly Britain's uh, role in the troubles of Ireland were very important in learning some of these lessons where obviously it had to, uh, it was imperative not to go kinetic because essentially, you know, this is this is a part of our, our, right. our, our, our overall nation. Um, I think there's a great deal of that could be learned from from the Israelis and, and the situation that they've uh, faced, but obviously the, the the elephant in the room is 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 Russia and specifically perhaps Lavrov and and a few other people who are very effective of using hybrid warfare as part of a bigger picture um, alongside special forces on the one hand for for kinetic teeth arms interventions but also much more integrated with their po politics and, uh, and so forth. If you look at Crimea, not a shot was, was right. fired. You know, I mean, that's an extraordinary information operations campaign on the one hand, irrespective we may not like the outcome, you still have to sort of uh, raise your cap to, to the individuals who conducted that and managed to essentially take over a country without firing a shot. Well, the Russians like the outcome. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, so we could learn a lot yeah. from that. And, and we, have to, we have to catch up. I mean, it's not to say that there are pockets of, of people doing some excellent work in this field, and many of which we probably couldn't discuss uh, on this, on this uh, podcast. But is there a, a general consensus in the military or within the, the, um, the private sector uh, defense uh, companies that that this is absolutely imperative and should be taken as seriously as as we take it perhaps not yeah and it seems to be confined to the special operations groups i mean the mm -hmm. green berets in the united states capital s capital f special forces were kind of designed with this in mind to kind of embed themselves in villages and but it's very difficult to spread that idea across the broader you know the grunt on the ground the pfc the the infantry unit, they're not thinking that way. I mean, maybe now they are a little bit more because of all the training and experience in Afghanistan, but it's certainly not a widespread idea throughout but, the military. But it, I don't think it would take long, actually, for this to catch on, because I think the, the, the corporals on the ground, and, and first of all, just one small correction, I wasn't an officer, by the way, in the, in the reserves, just to make that clear, but um, at the battalion group level on the ground, I think the notion of the strategic corporal is, is gaining traction across the world in, in militaries. The very fact of the point of interaction, the touch point between the military and the local population can become a talk point. It can become part of an integrated one voice campaign by a military to explain why it's there, to explain genuinely with purpose its intent. That is incredibly valuable and very important and will increase the likelihood of strategic success as well as tactical success. If you think at the moment, if you went to Afghanistan and said to the local population, let's say around Kandahar, why are ISAF here? I still don't think they'd have an answer that would be consistent. Yeah. You could ask 100 people, you get 100 different answers. So clearly the, the level of communication that the corporals could have been having, the Gurkhas are very good at this actually, that's what they're superb at as well as the, um, some other uh, forces around the world. I would like to think we will be pushing on an open door. It's just the militaries of the world take a little bit of time to adopt things, as we know. You, know. you actually tell a great story in the book about uh, from Afghanistan where uh, there's a unit trying to convince the Taliban to give up, to, to fight. And using we're going to kill you unless you give up wasn't effective because they were ready and willing to die. But using a different tactic because you understood a little bit about what they were afraid of made all the difference. That was uh, Operation Badzooka, which uh, stands for uh, Falcon's Summit or Falcon's Nest. Um, yes, I was personally involved in that. It was, it was a, uh, a requirement at the beginning of the operation. Uh, we had been briefed to see if we could move some tier one embedded Taliban from their position to get them put down their weapons and walk away from the battlefield. Um, obviously, the fact that they're embedded was very significant concern because you know a significant loss of life would have would have uh, happened on both sides had had ISAF gone into that uh, environment. Um, the normal way of conducting that operation would have been exactly as you say, is to drop leaflets to go above them with with either a, a fast jet or with a helicopter. Drop leaflets saying, you know, tomorrow at this time we will bomb this area. So put down your weapons and walk away. Now in in Iraq. 
Iraq, that had been very, very uh, effective, and partly because the people who were, were fighting in Iraq were sort of press-ganged into fighting and didn't right. really want to be there. It was quite different with tier, uh, tier one embedded uh, fighters, though, because they wanted to be there, they wanted to die, and they were quite happily going to mm. stay there and say, right, fine, oh, you say you're going to kill us, well, we're going to kill you, so come, come along and let's have, a big, let's have a big fight. So we changed our tack. We, we got a bit of intelligence through from a debriefing that actually what they were more um, afraid of rather than death was actually capture and being taken to Guantanamo. So all it took was a change of a sentence on the leaflets, which said, you know, we're coming to capture you, not to kill you. And suddenly I, I was in the helicopter. We then dropped the leaflets on them. And then sure enough, in a matter of hours, we were then watching as people were putting down their weapons. We were watching them read the leaflets, put down their weapons or put the weapons over their shoulders and walk off the battlefield. And I, I think I'm right in saying that not a single person uh, died on that day as a consequence of that. Well, that's you know just one small microcosm, right. and I don't want to overstate my involvement. It was a very uh, uh, significant team that was working on that, but just in microcosm, and there, and there are many of those instances that I've personally seen in, in conflict zones. I'm sure that many people listening to this will have their own stories of when actually engagement and dialogue did indeed result in in being more effective than mm -hmm. division and more effective than conflict. If we can collectively learn from that, and the attempt of the book is to, is to crystallize as many of those learnings and systematize it, saying, well, look, if we could start here, which is this is the best practice to understand an audience, and using that, this is the best practice, therefore, to craft your messaging, and then here are some recommendations of how to roll that out and to measure it. Well, if the book does one thing, if it can achieve that and get us all to the same baseline, then I, I very much, uh, I'd be extremely proud if it did that. Yeah, because you're not advocating doing this all the time or as a strategy that will work every time. It's, it's along with mm -hmm. perhaps every once in a while the need to, to kill a bunch of people. I mean, that, that's, it, it goes back to kind of everyone loved when General Mattis was made Secretary of Defense, pulling out his famous quote of a Marine should be polite, be professional, but have a plan to kill everybody they meet. This is the polite professional part of it. This is the other side of that strategy um, that 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 is being used to a degree, but you're arguing should be used dramatically more than the, actually. It, it certainly should be um, tested yeah. uh, under under sort of almost if you can say kind of clinical conditions as part of uh, military campaigning and also peacekeeping campaigning, and more generally for commercial brands as well. I mean, this applies just as much yeah. to a commercial brand selling a product. Um, there, the the problem is, of course, if you if you if you engage in the kinetic and you kill someone, especially if you're in certain parts of the world where we're operating, you have 15 other family members yeah. that then want to kill you. So essentially, you can be actually escalating the problem. Um, in some instances, when I was certainly in in conflict situations, and then was able to then talk to the people that we were we were we were facing at the end of the the, uh, the particular operation. I mean, I've, I've heard things ranging from, well, we were only fighting because we wanted running water. And it's like, well, why didn't you come and tell us that right. before you picked up a weapon? You know, or we were fighting because the Taliban told us to, and we had no choice because they've got my daughter uh, hostage, or, or things like that. Or they've they've prepaid for the opium crop, and we haven't yet delivered it, and otherwise we'll be in debt to the Taliban. So we've got to pick up arms when they say. There are lots of different motivational reasons. If we just took the time to listen to them, we may actually be able to reduce the drivers of the enemy. Well, right. undermining the enemy is sort of what Sung Tzu was saying before yeah. you even engage with them. It's actually probably the purest form of, of, of victory, isn't it? Well, and even in that, I mean, especially in that case, if you provided that village with running water, not only do you not have to fight them, but you may have just created an ally. I, I, that so. exact explicit example was actually a real uh, case study. And as we were getting back into the helicopter in the evening, the, the Dutch captain I was with, the, the person who was previously uh, had been intending to fight us, actually was shaking the hand of the, of the Dutch captain, telling around saying, please do come and see us again. Yeah. You know, which is just, you couldn't have imagined a, a sort of more overt example, again, of, of, of taking the time to at least try dialogue at right. least but if you're going to try do it in the most systematic way possible to increase the chances of its success right, this That's isn't just chatting with people this no. is a scientific yes. way of making sure that everything you say matters and has the most effect it possibly can. That's right. Increasing resonance, increasing you know relevance, activating peer-to-peer -peer networks, ensuring that they they talk on the information that you're giving them, ensuring that it pattern matches their psychology and their cultural factors and linguistics. It it sounds very simple. It it is complicated. It's taken 10, 15 years to create the model. Um, that's in in the book, and the intention is now to almost sort of share that with other people who may share the opinion at least to consider this more overtly, and and give them the tools and fast track them to 
a position to actually start experimenting with this with themselves. Let me ask themselves. you about the not another brother case study because this is fascinating to me. Because it, you know, sometimes you can write a book like this and people read it and go, well, that's nice, but it's not going to really work in a mask. This is it working yes. in a pretty significant way. You know, and a lot of people are looking at ISIS as kind of a, they're not an existential threat. Let's, let's understand that out in the listener world. But as a major threat to peace and security in the world. And this is kind of solution-based, you know. So can you talk a little bit about it and, and what, what kind of impact it had? We, we were approached by a, um, a sort of think tank, a charity think tank, to uh, help them with uh, an issue relating to online recruitment of young men, particularly. Um, internationally, but with a focus on, on, on uh, England and Britain as, as part of the brief. So we did it actually as a, as a, we didn't charge for the work, we just did it to prove the effect that our techniques could have, supposedly in this very uh, difficult, this difficult nut to crack that everyone was saying that the uh, Daesh is so fantastic at their online propaganda and their online recruitment. And once they get their hooks into people, it's very difficult to dissuade them from the radicalization journey. Well, we wanted to challenge that and say, well, no, if you take the time to get to know this audience and, and do what we say, then we should have a, a very significant effect. So what we did is spend the first six weeks just listening to Daesh and observing them, deep listening to them online, the way in which they were using language, the way in which the audience was responding to that language, the way in which they were recruiting people and moving them up a pipeline of language as they, as they kind of radicalized them through the, 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 the pipeline. The pre-consideration to consideration switch, where people weren't really thinking about Daesh and what were the hooks that were making them switch from preconsideration to consideration and then up, up this almost the purchase cycle as you'd say uh, commercially so we went through that process we, we profiled them using raid profiled the language the the cognition the, the transfer structures of the audience where were they getting the information who were they listening to who were they acting upon uh, as well as the contextual factors that may be influencing them sociological political and, and gender-based um, once we had that we then created a viral uh, video an intervention that we would seed online as if it was coming from Daesh so we would essentially have people click onto it on the expectation that what they were going to watch was a Daesh recruitment film and we released it anonymously on the internet we filmed it in the style of a Daesh film, we used uh, a narrative of two brothers talking, one who's gone to Syria, and, and sort of reading a letter that his brother put in his pocket, and, and, and you can watch it online, not another brother, uh, um, to watch the video. So the, the results are absolutely extraordinary. We, we sort of infiltrated and influenced known recruiter networks, recruiting networks online. Um, I think, the, first of all, the media impressions, I mean, there are different ways to KPI this, to key performance indicator it. I mean, in terms of media impressions, for a little free viral, it had 500 million media impressions within seven days. Wow. I mean, it went global yeah. like that, you know. Uh, but that's, you know, that's just scale and that's reach. That's not necessarily the most, you know, it's impressive, but it's not the most, uh, the most uh, indicative of its effect. What was very interesting to see was the degree to which, first of all, the Daesh online community who were the recruiters were so hostile to the video and were trying to slam, slam it down because it was obviously having an effect right. on their audience. So the hostility, and they were sort of revealing their networks, which was remarkable. So they yeah. suddenly were kind of, you know, popping up people who hadn't been known as being actually essentially recruiters for Daesh. So that was useful in itself. Then the actual target audience itself, the people who were susceptible to this recruitment, we could watch their viewing of the video and which bits they were responding to we would then track their language usage afterwards to see what they were saying afterwards, having watched it. We there were videos, uh, sorry, emails coming into to the the website saying people were uh, suddenly it was like an epiphany to them that they were realizing uh, they were using their brothers as weapons and and stepping back. And we had some wonderful emails coming in from people who were former terrorists saying how it's resonated. So yes, as a it was a a very small scale piece of work, but it had. A, a staggering uh, reach and, and effect and has certainly been a template for us to use those same techniques in other ways going forward to support other charities. Uh. One of the things that I, I thought was very interesting, not only from your book, but from a lot of what this case study talks about is this whole pattern of life analysis because a lot of people who listen to this may know a little bit about traffic analysis because it's kind of a key component to you know, signals intelligence when you can't break the code necessarily, but even when you can, traffic analysis can tell you a whole lot. And so this is kind of a, a descendant of that, looking at people. Uh, and, and it can be potentially beneficial in predicting threats, everything from terrorism to state action. Um, and, and then on the, on the flip side of this, and this is one of my two-part questions with you for whatever reason, 
how do we stop from being predictable and becoming threats ourselves? Because what's good for them is good for us, or bad for them is bad for us, the same respect. Yes, I mean, pattern of life, uh, essentially, you know, listening or observing for patterns and clusters of behavior throughout the day, and that could be shopping behavior, that's why you have store cards, or it could be accessing information behavior or online behavior and so forth, absolutely is a vulnerability for, for the enemy, but also for us. In the same way as if you did counter surveillance training, you know, you never take the same route if, if, right. if you're kind of training military intelligence. Um, however, the, the sheer power, well, the problem is you've got truth shock, though, with pattern of life uh, content quite often, which is uh, the the person who is asking you to find out the information often doesn't like what they hear and the truth shock of the actual truth of what you're trying to tell them is too much for them to take on yeah. board. Now this is where Harry Hinsley in, in, the, uh, in the Second World War with uh, Bletchley Park, there was, a, there was someone who was doing um, a traffic analysis essentially for, they couldn't decode Enigma at the time, so they couldn't de decode um, the the, uh, the German uh, Morse communications, but this this wonderful young man called uh, called Harry Hinsley at the age of 21 had started to see patterns in that information in relation to the way in which the, the German Navy was being moved around and every time there was a, a kind of cluster of, and a pattern of this information he would go to the Admiralty and say I think that they're moving these, these ships or I think you need to change your fleet plans for this area. Um, but he wasn't listened to. Again, the truth shock of hearing this from a 21-year-old who was actually quite poor, and at the time it was quite a, you know, a, right. a, a, a gradated sort of society in, in Britain at the time. You know, they just didn't believe him, and he specifically had warned them about uh, um, some movements off, off uh, occupied Norway. And of course, they, they didn't listen. The consequence was uh, uh, HMS Glorious got sunk with its two, two escorts, and 1,500 British lives were lost. From that moment, the Admiralty started taking it seriously. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> to, to a little light, but hey. Yeah, yeah and that's often the way it goes with clients. So even if you have pattern of life, which is a tremendous asset and, and something we use, of course we do. Um, it's it's the it's communicating still to your client, whoever that may be, if it's governmental or commercial, that you can you can ascertain and deduce a significant amount of usable intelligence from that. Um, there's still a step to go there. It's still it's still sort of a Cinderella in intelligence function. You know, yeah. I, I hope I hope the the enemy is having the same problem of communicating to their commanders that it's such usable intelligence because uh, then however predictable we are, they're going to still face the same problems, right. which no one's listening. You know? It seems like we, even forget intelligence collection, mm -hmm. but even with like the not another brother campaign, mm -hmm. understanding these people and being empathetic to them and understanding how they go through life and what their triggers are and other things like that. Does this go in? So there, there's a, a part of your book that I just, I chuckled at because it sounds like the greatest job ever made. It's a chief listening officer. Yes. And yes. if you want to pay me all day to sit and listen to stuff, that's great. But it's more than just that. And, and can you tell, how does it, how does it intertwine into what we've been talking about? Because, I mean, because you said like the first six weeks or was it six months or six weeks of the Not Another Brother campaign, you just sat back mm -hmm. and took in. That's right. Listening, deep listening, yeah. is the, it's, it's the hardest thing almost to teach people to do and, and to, to get clients to accept that you need to do. Um, chief listening officers, let's say if I'm fighting a political campaign, I've, I've run several political campaigns, um, one of the first things I'll do, or if not the first thing I'll do, is uh, hire someone to go and listen and to sit in a bar, sit in a cafe, go to a nightclub, um, go and stand outside a, a, a shopping center in a queue and listen to what people are talking about. Listen to the language they're using. Which radio stations are they choosing, uh, tuning into? What's the similarity of language between the radio station and the printed material, if it's a magazine or a newspaper they're reading? Are they also adopting that language online? The, just the simple mechanic of properly embedding yourself within a community and listening to them can often give you the solution to seemingly the hardest issues to, to, to solve. Now, I'm sure we do that in a defense side of things in terms of, you know, agent handling and so forth is all about infiltrating networks. The question then is how much of that language usage is getting fed back to the people that can use it for communications purposes, right. you know. So chief listening officer sounds like a very exciting job, and sometimes it can be. I mean, you know, in the Caribbean when I was doing elections out there, you know, I was paying someone to sit in a rum bar uh, <laughs> with a newspaper and, and just sit and drink beer and rum and write reports in the evening. I mean, it was, to some extent, the best job in the world, but they do work for for their money, they've got to they've got to come up with the goods, you know. So it's it's uh, perhaps the uh, the romance of it is 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 better than the reality, I think. More about psyops in one minute. 
But let me take a moment to tell you about ZipRecruiter. As I've told you before, ZipRecruiter is a company that was founded by a group of guys who worked in the tech industry and with startups and realized the absolute worst thing about running an organization was the process of hiring people. If you live in Washington, you might notice a new building going up in the L'Enfant Plaza area. It's pretty hard to miss at this point. The building of the new museum is chugging away, but soon comes the hard part. We'll eventually need to hire a lot more people as we get closer to the opening. When we need to hire a new person, we want to get the very best people, and of course, who doesn't? But the process seems never-ending, and it can take a huge amount of time, time we don't have as we try to run our current operation while planning the content for the new museum. The people at ZipRecruiter have the solution. So are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Then, their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job, better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. There's no juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. So find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Right now, SpyCast listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com first. That's ZipRecruiter.com first. One more time to try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com first. So you use a lot of words like science of empathy and persuasion, and there's obviously the verbal engineering, a lot of science and technology verbiage here. Like a lot of sciences and a lot of technologies, this can be used for good or it can be used for evil as well. And, and how much from the last, let's say, 2016, just pick a random year, <laughs> where it seems like language was weaponized, uh, not just by the Russians, who are the mm -hmm. culprits, obviously, with the information operations and their active measures, but even within the United States and now in Europe and with the Brexit vote and with with the vote and the election of 2016, where, uh, you know, words can make a pretty dramatic difference uh, for and psychological operations ran here in the United States and in Europe and around the world where what you're talking about is kind of being used against us in many respects. And we need to watch out for that. There are several things here. First of all, you're not allowed to use psychological operations against your own side. It's covered by the Geneva Convention as a, as a weapon of mass destruction, I think. I'm not sure exactly the terminology. But So the first thing is say no one should be using it against their own side if it's military psychological right. operations. Okay, But in terms of effective persuasion techniques using language, that's something different. Yes, completely, that's used in politics. Yes, absolutely, it's used by the church. It's used by car salesmen. It's used by insurance salespeople. Yeah? It's been going since the beginning of rhetoric back in, 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 in uh, the times of the Greeks. You know, Obama did a wonderful job of using language in his 2008 campaign. We, we have a, a system by which we break down the verbal elements. Again, it's described in the book, but the verbal elements necessary to communicate most effectively with an audience. And we, we have a, something called a virtuous circle, which is a brand essence, a key verbal, and a power word. If, um, as we do in the book, we break down Obama's 2008 campaign, he had all those various elements. He was pattern matching the audience's cognition in a very, very sophisticated linguistic fashion. Now, you could say, well, that might be an accident, but then he used exactly the same format in, in 2012 yeah. and, and, and won again. It's a very similar format that was used by... Um, Trump in, in this election with, you know, um, the great campaign and the notion of great, and which, again, is a sort of system one word, which is, let's make it great. Let's make our country great again. Well, who's going to disagree with that? And you can right. you've got so much information coming into you. You can um, you can sort of agree and move on. You don't have to think about it too, well, it's too like much. Hope. Yeah. Who doesn't want to have hope? Absolutely. Right? I mean, that's like yeah. Absolutely. So it, it sort of creates a system one agreement, and then you don't really give it much consideration. But you're building groundswell, and and you're building a sort of a, a, a belief that everyone else is on side, and this grassroots community wants everything to be great. That's actually a very everyone kind of laughed at him and said what a what a simplistic campaign he was running, how facile it was. Quite the opposite. He was knowingly sophisticated. In, he only did, or his campaign team, only did what was necessary to bring the mass audience with them and nothing more. 
Well, that's what the Russians are doing with their hybrid warfare. That's what they're trying to do with Ukraine. That's what they're trying to do on all the border areas, be it Poland, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. That's what happens in, in you know, many parts of the world through, through um, seasoned information operations practitioners. We need to get the audience savvier if we believe it's happening to us. The best way to counter this is to explain it with a degree of transparency so everyone can actually see what's going on, to explain what's happening on the internet and what they should look out for, and that education, education, education to the audience, you know, well, for the audience. You talk about uh, perception versus cognition. I mean, how, and I think there's even an anecdote in the book, and in, 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 if I'm remembering this wrong, I don't think I am, but the idea of, you can tell certain people like the Brexit voters or the or Trump voters or anybody else kind of the, the re news. You can say, here is the reality. But in many cases, it doesn't matter what you say. And it's not like them are going to, oh, it's fake news. It's the idea that they're just not willing to listen. They've made up their mind. And with social media being the way that it is and with our lives being online versus person to person looking people in the face, you know, you can see why the pollsters got things so dramatically wrong. Well, the pollsters got things wrong because they don't have sophisticated enough behavioural measures. They've got perceptual measures. So if you go to someone after Christmas and say, um, are you going to lose weight this year? Yes, I'm going to go to the gym every day without any question. I'm going to carry on to at least March or April and all the rest of it. Well, a behavioural measure will actually identify that they stop going to the gym within a matter of week. But the perception still might be there if you were to if you listen just for perception. So polling by its very nature at the moment is just fundamentally flawed and not fit for purpose for this sort of area. There's a different way to measure. Um, why, why do people not listen though, let's say to, to an argument that you say is the reality, is the truth? Well, if their cognitive bias is stronger than your truth, yeah. and they are campaigning to the cognitive bias, then the other side wins. So if the cognitive bias feels as though America is falling apart, I haven't got a job, my family is suffering, I can't put bread on the table, it doesn't matter if you turn around and say a different truth. If that's, if that's what's being appealed to, my, my system one uh, brain process is reaffirming that, you're going to have to take a completely different tack. You know? It's perhaps better to understand them and pattern match their own language more effectively rather than try and convince them of, of something totally different. You're just, it's much more uh, sophisticated nudging technique that's used rather than just putting presenting a binary argument right. it's the same with russia you know a anyone that goes to a, to a kind of a, a, a marginal seat if you like between russia and the west you know between nato and the west uh, and russia you know which is balanced between which one is the better way to go with our country obviously russia is going to just con consistently beat the drum and reinforce the cognitive bias towards the west is decadent the west is exploitative the west can't be trusted look at the way they've dropped the ball in syria with all the people they said they support look at the way in which they dropped the ball in in iraq with the people they said they support or the in libya with the people. you know there there is a sort of litany in recent history of, of examples that the russians can use to reinforce that cognitive bias so to come in with any notion of turning around and saying no we're not we're absolutely fine you can trust us is never going to work Right. We've got to think of a much more sophisticated way into the problem, and that means going and listening to the audience, really understanding them, and then effectively pattern matching them with something credible, timely, and, and still moving them in the right strategic direction you want them to go, but just doing it in a mature, sensible way. Right. You know. well, and that means, for in the case of the Russians, understanding the Baltic states and what their hopes and fears and dreams are. It seems like we're doing a decent job at that. I mean, they're, they're about as locked in in NATO as you possibly can get. I'm more worried about, in Western Europe and the United States, falling prey to Russian active measures. Because I, I, people get mad at me all the time, and I get emails all the time about how lefty I am. And, you know, I'm not trying to beat on the Trump administration. There is proof of Russian active measures, both, you know, for and against Trump. The, the, the sad part is how effective they were and how people are willing to believe things that are completely untrue because, like you said, it reinforces the right. It happens on the left, too, right? The left is just dying to read news reports or social media reports about Trump about to be impeached and all this. And they just put aside logic and, you know, sanity to embrace these ideas. And, and, and that seems to be exploitable, unfortunately, by some, but also we need to find ways to prevent it from happening for both the right and the left in the United States. 
Yes, there is, there is little doubt that there is sort of chicanery of, of all sorts in the American political system at the moment, in the same way as pretty much any other democratic system in the West be it in, in Great Britain, the attempts have been made to, of course they have, and we, we know things that can't be discussed on this podcast, I'm sure, and that, we're, that can, can evidence that. There are several solutions to this. First of all, or solutions, at least ways forward on this. First of all, education to the audience. Okay, So if you believe there is fake news out there and you believe it is having a detrimental effect, then facilitate the audience to understand the likely uh, nature of that fake information, provide apps, provide technology, greater responsibility from the, the, the proper media, if you like, to do their job and, and, and responsible journalism, responsible paid-for content. But the key is talking to them the way they're ready to accept that information, right? I mean, isn't that... Uh, yes, so, you, have to, you have to link it to what they care about. Again, if, you, if an awful lot of people aren't interested in the fact that Russia may or may not have affected some of the American election, because at the end of the day, they're struggling to pay their mortgage. Right. And so the notion that they give a damn about the political classes all messing around, as far as they're concerned, they're all corrupt anyway. You know, it, it makes no damn difference if it's Russian corruption or American corruption or British corruption or French corruption. It doesn't, you know, they, they're all as bad as each other, a plague on all their houses. You know, that, there is definitely, there is still a disconnect at the moment between the language of our politics, the language of our, uh, our, our people, and, cre and the language of communities within the, you know, various communities within, within the, 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 the master community, you know, that's where the work needs to be done. And that comes back to the need for properly understanding what's going on in their heads and their minds and their hearts, properly designing your language, therefore, to communicate what you've got to say in a way that is going to resonate. Because if we don't do that, we're going to lose all confidence in politics, you know, proven right. or unproven, whether or not, once you lose the people, well, what is democracy? Right. We have to sustain that dialogue between politicians and, and, and the communities they represent. Yes, they need to clear up their act. Yes, there needs to be greater defense against information operations. But that's really the role of, of the defense services in all right. their form, if it's military or, or, or national defense in, in one form or another the role of the politicians surely is to is to understand and communicate responsibly with their communities in a way that makes their lives better if they spent their time doing that well that would be a great thing again we'd like to thank ZipRecruiter and movement watches for continuing to support the spycast family remember you can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free that's right free by going to ziprecruiter.com first and you get 15 percent off today with free shipping and free returns by going to movementwatches.com slash spycast. Well, since both of us talk really, really fast, we've been able to shove in about an hour and a half podcast in the 45 minutes. So, so I appreciate you taking the time. Look, the book is fascinating. I don't care what field you're in. It, it'll have something that will make a difference to you. And certainly if you're thinking about intelligence in the fight against uh, violent extremism and CVE, uh, there's certainly stuff in here that's worth taking a look at. It's called Verbalization, The Power of Words That Drive Change. And I, I think now it is available just about everywhere, Amazon. Um, and so, Sven Hughes, thank you for taking the time to join us here on SpyCast. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Vince. Thank you for joining us on SpyCast. Every Tuesday, we'll give you the most interesting conversations with some of the most intriguing people in the world of intelligence. If you'd like to send us a comment or suggestion, you can email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org, or tweet us at intlspycast, that's I-N-T-L-S-P-Y-C-A-S-T. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.